a new era is upon us and Tangent is back with a new limited series hosted by venture capitalist Jeffrey Berman and me, PropTech entrepreneur Edward Cohen. Tangent unites PropTech founders, real estate investors, urban leaders and passionate creators who are improving our cities and quality of life. Join us to learn how we can solve the present day challenges in our communities with innovative technology and greater collaboration. We'll examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. If you are working on a PropTech solution, a nonprofit, or a small business that makes our cities better and would like your mission featured on our features segment, please email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hi there. I'm Jeffrey Berman, Edward's co-host on this season of Tangent. Today on Tangent, we have the pleasure to talk to and learn from Jason Feudin, co-founder and CEO of Placemaker. Hi, Jason. Where does this podcast find you? Hey, Edward and Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm coming to you from Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us from the capital of the empire. Um, so, Placemaker, fascinating story how you guys started from a pop-up hotel uh, during multifamily vacancy uh, all the way to a hospital living platform. Uh, tell us more about it. Tell us how you started and how you got to today. Sure. So I guess I'll back up a little bit. Uh, me and my co-founder both came from institutional real estate. Uh, so I ran a couple billion dollars in multifamily development. He did the same. Uh, and it became really clear to us that uh, the future of real estate was looking pretty pretty uninnovative. Um, the way we've been running and building buildings hasn't changed dramatically for uh, generations. And so what became really obvious to us is there was a lot more value to be created in real estate by making it more flexible uh, and commingled. And so uh, we, we set out to do that. What you said about us running pop-up hotels, that's true, but that's really just the reflection of our, our long-term view of the world, which is that core urban assets should be designed to commingle and flex between all the major food groups of real estate. So home, hotel, retail, work. Uh, we just decided to focus on the spectrum between home and hotel to start because it was a hard enough problem. And, and it might sound kind of stupid, but you can stay a night in an apartment uh, without having to make major physical modifications. So you didn't have to largely change the investment in the underlying real estate in order to financially engineer much better products uh, for real estate investors and consumers alike. I mean, they say innovation is dead, but I love how you, you found this this uh, niche to, to begin with, uh, you know, during multifamily lease up, created value pretty much out of thin air and then uh, grew from there. Yeah, so the, the way our pop-ups work, it's kind of simple. The execution's not all that simple, but the logic is when a developer builds a high-rise apartment building, say three or 400 units, they deliver those units pretty much all at once and empty. And then they lease up that building and that should take anywhere from 10 to 24 months. That means there's hundreds of brand new, uh, beautiful apartments that sit vacant just as a function of the term mismatch between the way you lease and the way you build. And so what we do is we bring hospitality in with a shorter, shorter term duration to go monetize that vacancy during lease up. We'll take 100 or so units, fill them with brand new uh, furniture, put a 24-7 on-site staff in place, and uh, turn that vacancy into a pseudo apartment hotel and deliver a few million dollars of found income during lease up to developers. Uh, we also get the pleasure then of making the consumer experience better for residents. And so all the residents that move in early get this hospitality wrapper. They get free room nights, free cleaning services. Um, they get a better experience being new into a building. 
And that energy and activation that comes with us uh, taking 100 or more units also brings that building and that community to life. So it's a win-win-win. You know, developer gets more money, consumers get more services, uh, jurisdictions get additional jobs and tax revenue and a, a unique product type in their cities. And we get the benefit of turning, like you said, something that's worth nothing into something that's worth something for a lot of people. And I want to I want to jump in here because, and Jason, I, I want you to talk about the earliest stages of Placemaker, which was formerly called Y Hotel, and the conversations that you and, and my partner Casey and Bao had, because like now when you when you talk about it and when you when you go through the narrative, it sounds so obvious, right? You have three to four hundred units; they're just sitting there vacant. Why not have the opportunity to drive revenue, drive yield, and de-risk the project? But back when you and Bao had this idea, it was revolutionary. People weren't thinking like, oh, well, this is the riskiest time of the development when we're go- trying to go from construction loan to perm loan. We've got all these vacant units. We've got massive vacancy loss. And if the economy, if the lease up isn't really quick, then we're just going to be sucking air for a while. And you guys had this amazing idea. Can you talk through, I already know the story, but can you talk through that aha moment that you had in the specific project? So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. So. Uh, My last role in the conventional real estate world was I was an executive at Vornado Realty, a large publicly traded REIT, and I ran the innovation group there out of the D.C. office. And what was nice about that role is it was one of the first times in my career that I could pull my head up, you know, out of the day-to-day detail and the execution and take a broader look at what's happening in the world. And so I spent a lot of time focused on what does the future of real estate look like and how could it benefit us at Vornado, our you know, $35 billion portfolio at the time or something like that. And what was really interesting to me is there was a bunch of incremental stuff. So think like things around like utility management or access control or all these like smaller things that could change the income stream minorly of an asset. And what I spent a lot of time focused on is how do you fundamentally change the financials of real estate? And there was a concept at the time that had a lot of energy and that was higher utilization, lower lower chunk price. And what that means is you charge everyone a little less, but you get get more cycles in the real estate. So think like co-working, co-living, you know, shared conferencing, like what Breather did back in the day. And to me, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Get more money out of an asset. But what it failed to do is the next step, which is be able to change out your customer sets through different seasons and cycles in order to further optimize the real estate. And that's that blending. And so I actually, I met with uh, Jeff's partner, Casey, at, at lunch, got a burger. And at the time I was making investments on behalf of Vornado. And um, Casey's like, well, you know, what's interesting out there? And I was like, not a whole heck of a lot, man. It's, it's pretty shitty. And he's like, well, what, would, what do you think should be built? I was like, someone's got to blend hospitality and multifamully in a way that's accretive to the real estate. And the easiest place to start is to monetize the vacancy during lease up. He said, great, why don't you start that company? And I said, nah, it's cool. You know, I'm busy. I run a lot of things. Casey, why don't you go start that company? And he was like, nah, I'm cool. And so then a week went by and I, I was, you know, I was down in Florida. I was like there for some marathon or something. And I, I just couldn't shake like how obvious this outcome was and, and how the world was definitely going to move in this direction. It had to. It just makes mathematical and customer sense. And uh, at like two in the morning, I woke up, I put together a presentation on what the future of real estate ought to look like. I called Casey when I got back to DC and was like, I'd like to go build this thing. And then I, I took it to Vornado because I was like, I can't let you, I work at Vornado. And Vornado was like, yeah, build it here. So I started building it. Um, we ran a pilot 
And then we, we decided at Fornado that given the REIT status, it wasn't the best fit. And I spun it out, and that's when Jeffrey and Casey led our seed round, and we started the march toward the, the permanent blending of hospitality and multifamily. One of the things that, that Jeff said is, if your building sucks wind, you'll be really happy you had this insurance policy. The reality is if your building does as planned, you still make a million to $3 million. If it goes the wrong way, maybe you make like three to five or three to seven. And you know, given the environment we see today, where rents are softening a lot of markets and leasing velocity is decelerating, uh, and you're likely to see some serious unemployment, uh, we have seen a tremendous amount of demand for that pop-up product. I guess it's worth saying though, that's the smallest part of our business. That's today less than 20% of our inventory. Um, but it was the the jumping off point toward permanently blending multifamily and hospitality. And the reason that we chose it was because it was free money, we knew we would suck. Um, you know, People that we made a million dollars for three years ago, we'd probably make two or three million for today. But we figured a million was better than zero. They were happy then. And it gave us the sandbox to get really good. Uh, and today, you know, we do we do pop-ups as well. We make our partners even more money. But it was really the space we learned to figure out you know, channel management, yield optimization, switching costs, tech stack, and all of the little things you have to get right to blend multi and hospitality in an effective way for customers and for ownership. Many commercial real estate investors and operators are stuck with untrusted and incomplete data with antiquated tools. By focusing on providing customers with accurate, comprehensive, and structured lease data, Profia is addressing this severe and persistent pain point in the industry. Profia is a rising PropTech smart tool for commercial real estate and lease abstraction used across 1,800 buildings with 100% customer retention and has exceeded 1 million pages scanned with its AI-powered technology. With Profia's AI abstraction tool, commercial real estate owners, investors, and operators can eliminate manually intensive lease abstractions and data accessibility processes. This allows users to enhance their investment strategy in real time with complete, verifiable, and structured commercial portfolio data. Users can save time and resources while significantly reducing the risk of costly litigation from contractual inaccuracies while ensuring ongoing compliance and optimized performance. If you'd like to learn more about how Profia can help your lease abstraction and data management, please visit Profia.com. That's P-R-O-P-H-I-A.com. Uh, real estate and financial optimization company. I think that's a fascinating concept. Uh, and, and also how the, the blurring the lines between hospitality and multifamily from the way you and, and Placemaker have approached it. Because we, we've heard, you know, for a while how hospitality has entered all asset classes of real estate, but more, more from a user experience, from a tenant experience, not necessarily from a financial perspective. Uh, so talk, talk a bit more about that. I think that's, that's fascinating and super innovative. Yeah, so the word hospitality to a lot of people means high touch, high service. Uh, and so when people talk about the, the hospitalization of different asset classes like office and otherwise, what they're talking about is bringing more services to bear um, and making it higher touch. When we say we blend hospitality and multifamily, what we really mean is we, we blend the financials of a hotel and the financials of a multifamily building, meaning we're talking about the higher rated business. You know, if you're down in, let's say, Wynwood or Midtown, you know, it's maybe 250 a night on average for a hotel room. And, you know, it might be for that same one bedroom, let's say it's, I don't know, 2,500 bucks a month. So 250 a night times 30 is 7,500. 2,500 is 2,500. So you 
ostensibly could triple the revenue at 100% occupancy. That's the spread we're talking about, is the fact that there's different rated business. Now, what's, over t what's in the past made that really difficult is the expense margins on that 7,500 bucks are really high because of that high touch, high service. And what we've done is we've moved to a tech-enabled operation. So while we have 24-7 on site for all of our properties, 80% of our arrivals are contactless. Every interaction that, that a guest has with us can happen via text, via email, via phone, and we'll continue to get more and more efficient at delivering that. And so now all of a sudden on these apartment style products where you only would have had either multifamily income or furnished income with some serious expense to it, we've now created a pretty large chasm in income streams between traditional multi and furnished, and then we can play the optimization game. How much to furnish, how, how little to furnish, what the length of stay is. You know, we do a lot of like 10 week internships. We do, you know, shorter stays for transient. We do 90 day reloads, someone moves to an area. And Bleasure has been a big part of our business where folks are in town to work, but they want to stay there a little longer. You know, a six or seven day stay is not all that comfortable in a hotel. And so that, when we talk about blending hospitality, multifamily, what we really mean is blending the financial profile of a hotel, of an apartment, of corporate housing and everything between those two. Fascinating. And by leisure, you mean business and, and leisure? Oh, sorry. Yes. I mean, business and leisure. There was an article in the, the Wall Street Journal that leisure has saved the airlines. Basically, people's ability to travel uh, and not be pinned directly to their office five days a week, where they have five days at the office, two days for leisure, has completely upended the financials of the airline industry. And all of that is you know, a tailwind for our type of product, this longer stay apartment style product where folks want the space and convenience of a place they can call home for a week as opposed to, you know, a bed for a night. Fascinating. Now, you, as you pointed out, you do uh, some management plays uh, and you also own assets now. Uh, talk about the difference between asset light and asset heavy and, you know, what are some of the benefits of having uh, a mix uh, in your portfolio? Yeah, so I guess I, I talked about our pop-up product, which is where we monetize the vacancy during lease-up. The majority of what we do is called hospitality living. And that's where we take that same 300-unit building. And on a forever basis, we run the whole thing as a mix of furnished and unfurnished short and long stay to push the in-place income and, and add value to the asset. We've about 2,000 plus units of that today. Of those 2,000 units, just over half of it we do as third party, meaning we run it for other people. We have no position in the real estate. Uh, the other just under half of it, we acquire through separate capital. So we are a very asset-like company. Our operating company, in terms of hard costs, there's almost none. Our costs are people and technology and product build and marketing and branding and you know all of it, just people, really people. And that means that you can get to a very high margin business as you scale because we don't have tremendous physical hard expenses. That's really critical for operating business. Separately from that, we have a, you know, in this world called a Propco arm. And, and in that case, we source buildings to buy and we capitalize them with a different pool of capital. So we've done, I think, north of $100 million of equity and three, north of $300 million of acquisitions on that side of the house. And when we do that, we buy it with a separate pool of capital. And then those assets sign the same long-term management agreements with the platform as someone would if you know, we weren't in the ownership structure uh, for the real estate. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, no, it's super, super creative from all sides of the business. Again, everyone sees how, you know, now similar to Airbnb that now they're getting into multifamily leasing with, with, the, with the gray stars. I mean, you know, convenience above all else, right? Like there's no reason why 
traditional rental leases are too rigid and cumbersome. Like we should be able to rent an apartment either for a week, a month or a year as easy as, as we rent a short term rental. But you guys are not only doing that, but you're also innovating uh, on the investor side, on the management side as well. Right. And from, from an investor perspective, this notion of lending ultimate flexibility of an asset, that's very attractive because you, if you traditionally, an office building was an office building, a multifamily building was a multifamily building. Then they introduced retail and multifamily. This idea of blending uses and flexing in and out of specific durations enhances yields. And Placemaker is the pioneer in this space. And, and Jason, I, I don't think we can gloss over this, the difference between Placemaker's model and let's say Sonder or some of these other folks, which are different. They're leasing space and then reletting it in short term. What, what, do, what do you say about that? There's a couple parts of the business. One is the consumer angle. What do consumers want? And groups like Sonder and groups like Synergy and Corporate Housing, and you know, there's plenty of groups that deliver apartment style stays at varying lengths, you know, varying levels of furniture. And I'd say for consumers, there's a big similarity between what we deliver and what they deliver. Uh, there's a lot of differences, and my team would kill me if I didn't point out all the differences. You know, we have people on side. You know, we're able to deliver something better. Uh, our scores are better than all of those folks. Whatever. But like in the end, these are furnished apartments. So from a consumer standpoint, there's a lot of similarities. What's dramatically different is our movement between types of stays and types of homes and the way with which we acquire inventory, that incredibly asset light. So when someone signs a lease, it's, it's, it's like fake asset light. It's highly leveraged. A, a lease is no different than debt, right? It's an obligation for a period of time. That's not asset light. That's not asset light. In <laughs> fact, you count your leases as an asset uh, on your balance sheet. Um, <laughs> And so we don't we don't do that, right? Our entire business is designed to float on profit share and rev share, with, with no physical, no big expensive assets. That is critical through through cycles. You know, the pie, one of the pioneers of the lease arbitrage model was Regis, and they basically would just go through a chapter eleven every time there was a crisis, like the SNL crisis, and they would just let some of the entities fold, and they would, you know, let their deposits on their leases roll, and that you know that wasn't particularly great for the owners. Uh, but was really the only way to continue to reset. That model continued with WeWork as a lease arbitrage model. That model continued with Breather on the conference side, with Sonder on the furnished apartment side, and now the leased out hotel side, which I will say I do not understand. And so, you know, we've taken a very different approach. We've built a business that's designed to withstand cycles where the majority of the value we create gets is, a, you know, creative to the real estate. And I think in 20 years, we're going to look back and the idea that people built single-use buildings that just happen to stack uses on top of one each other is going to be silly. But the fact that we couldn't more efficiently use space for the highest and best use for customers on an as-needed basis is going to be silly. So as Jeffrey said, you know, we're in the business of commingled and flexible, and today we're focused on hospitality and multi, and we will for quite some time. But there's an inevitability to real estate just being built in a much more dynamic way. Definitely. And, and I, you know, back in 2018, 2019, I saw this firsthand when I was... Uh, working at Obligo, the security deposit alternative space. And we started getting reached out by all the co-living companies that needed security deposit replacements because they were master leasing entire floors, entire buildings, and then didn't want to tie up money in secure deposit that they didn't even have. And I was like, I mean, it's too bad because they're providing a, a product that there's a need for, but this is not a sustainable model. Like, how are they even going to you know, a little downturn, a little vacancy, like something happens and, you know, that, that building is still master lease. They're still on the hook for rent. 
it's just highly leveraged. It's like anything you highly leverage. When things go well, you make an ungodly amount of money. And when things go poorly, you go broke. Now, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, just navigating challenges when it comes to regulation across different cities. I mean, we've seen New York be really tough, uh, alleging that short-term rentals are removing, you know, supply from from the market for, for long-term residents. So how, you know, talk a bit about how the different cities uh, have been more friendly to adopt their building uses to accommodate, you know, present-day needs and, and how are you dealing with those? Yeah, so for our pop-ups, you know, we don't really bump into many regulatory issues because everyone wins, right? This, this encourages the development of more housing. It creates jobs. It increases the tax base. And in the end, you know, the ha- it's housing in the long term. Uh, when it comes to our permanent model, there are certain cities where we can't take existing apartment inventory and convert it to dual use. And there are certain cities we can. And in most cities for ground up, if a site would allow hotel use, of course, you could build a, an all suites hotel. Um, that's flexible. Uh, you know, we do run in New York under hotel COs. I think what's what you find in the regulatory regime is that it's designed for where the world was, not where it is. And so, you know, it takes time for those regimes to evolve. I say that most city officials, if they think that you have the best interest in mind for fire life safety, accessibility, and you're not doing harm, you know, they're, they're, they're good to work with. But there's red tape. You know, our background, my background in real estate development meant that I did a lot of community work as part of that. And so we, we don't shy away from those conversations. And there's certain places where we're not a fit in the right in this regulatory regime. But it, it's kind of funky when you get into things like, oh, well, how do you address affordable housing? Was well, it an apartment or is it a hotel? Well, it's, it's whatever you want it to be. Like, okay, okay, well, then it's like, oh, well, so like things get a little messier when a, the regulatory regime isn't designed for our use. And we, you know, we work through that. I say the one tough thing about um, local government is you're incentivized to not lose your job, which is different than incentivized to innovate. And so given that lens, you know, people will tend toward the more conservative outcome on any ruling or any view uh, unless pushed by, you know, the citizenry or something else. And so, you know, regulatory is slower moving, but we, we have great relationships with the cities we work with. And at some point in time, the codes will adopt as they always do, you know, 10 to 20 years behind where the world is. I think that's a thoughtful approach. And definitely, I mean, uh, now it's not companies competing for talent, it's cities comp- competing for talent and tax base. And yeah, they do have to get reelected every election cycle. And that's why they may prioritize any, any short term, you know, headline that may make them look good. But at the end of the day, that's not what's going to make them succeed long term. Well, and here's here's the funny thing is that real estate is one of the most highly regulated areas in the country. And it's one of the only basically education and real estate are the only two locally regulated areas. So if you were to go into a city or a county, the two biggest things that they control from a regulatory framework are education, and they also control food. But normally, some of that's at the state level, but, but education and real estate. And so there are teams of people whose job it is to regulate real estate. It, you know, it's not like some, like when the, when all of a sudden birds are dropping scooters, like, ooh, which regulatory, for, you know, which officials need to monitor the scooters? Like, it takes you a second to figure that out. It's very clear who needs to monitor the structural engineering, the building, the accessibility, the environmental, like, all of that's really clear. This is people's jobs. And so you can't just go skirt those. You know, we make a point. We follow all the rules in all the cities. And if we can't fall within the regulatory regime, we just don't do the work in those cities at this point in time. Plenty of cities that could use your your service and your products. Uh, there's 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 no no shortage. <laughs> um, now let's talk about something that you've been doing really cool now, which is uh, conversions, specifically from office to housing or to hospitality living. 
How are you finding those? What What's a good fit for those? How can we have more of those? Because I think, I mean, in terms of office space, we will always need office space, but I don't think we will need as much office space as we have currently. Uh, and we will always need housing and we need a ton more of it. So talk a bit about those conversions. Yeah, so we bought an office building in Washington, D.C., right near the White House, and our plan is to convert it to apartment-style inventory uh, that is CO'd, Certificate of Occupancy, that allows it to be hotel or multi, meaning any length of stay in these apartment suites. We also run a building in New York that was formerly an office building that got converted. And prior to my life at Placemaker, uh, when I was at Vornado, you know, there was two, two deals we took where we took office buildings and made it in, into multifamily. So that, that's not unique, this ability to convert one to the other. And really, one of the biggest factors in it is generally the floor plate, like what shape is the building? Does it lend itself? Or are you better knocking it down? What has changed in the last 20 years is work. What's changed the last 24 months is work. And so for our generation, for my generation, the biggest change in real estate is going to be the way people work, hands down. Because the way people work governs where their feet are, and where their feet are governs all things real estate. And so the biggest sea change you're going to see over the next 30 years is the fact that people can work differently and they don't need to be right next to the, to an office building and the kinds of like that's that's the biggest change. What that means is we probably have too much office space in a lot of cities, certainly too much downtown office space in a lot of cities. And what's going to happen is office is kind of screwed for a while because that messes up the debt structure if you have too much office space. And once the debt structure is messed up because your your rent rolls are like Swiss cheese and then you can't make any money on it and that pushed down it's like a it's a spiral of death for office unfortunately and what needs to happen is you need to clear out a lot of office inventory to rebalance that supply demand and one way to do that is to take office buildings and convert them to apartment style apartment stays or our blended apartment style stays the issue with it is office has got to get really cheap for it to start making sense to gut an existing building and convert its use and so you know, one of the ways you can accelerate that is through the regulatory environment. You know, cities as are looking at reducing real estate taxes, having incentives. There's a bunch of things you can do. Uh, it will happen over time. It might just take, you know, 15 years instead of seven to 10. But, you know, you'll see that in most major American cities coming uh, as long as office gets cheap enough. But office has to get real cheap. And, and it's not just that because as as office suffers, so the the service economy around those office spaces also suffer, but conversions actually stimulate more economic demand. Because like, if you look in midtown Manhattan, where you have office buildings that are, let's say 20, 30, 40, 50% occupied, the salad places on every corner, instead of being a hundred percent filled, they're 50% filled, but they're, they're also only open during working hours. But if you have a 24 seven building, then you potentially have 24-7 economic uses. So what Jason is talking about actually becomes an enhanced economic driver for municipalities. So this is something that we are also quite excited about and to be investors in, in Placemaker who are at the vanguard of helping move this, this way forward. Yeah, and what Jeff's talking about is an 18-hour activation day. That's your goal is you have 18 solid hours of activation which is you're like from 5.30 to you know, just before midnight or so, or right around that time, there's stuff going on. Jason, I, my, my wife and I, we moved from New York to Florida while our apartment was being built. We lived in a, in a Y hotel in Wynwood, Miami. And I don't know if anybody knows that area, but that's a 24-hour area. You, you know, having that, that flexibility in apartment style inventory, especially in these kind of core urban markets, is just something that doesn't exist uh, really. It was phenomenal because we had all of the amenities for the building and there were, I don't think anyone else there was tenured as long as I was, but there were a number of folks that were there for 
more than a month because they were just in between. They were people. They were Miami natives, and they were just in between homes. And they said, "Hey, you know what? Let's just hang our hat here for a little bit. This is pretty cool." That's awesome. Let's talk a bit about the future of cities, the future of your city, Washington D.C. Jason, if you were the mayor of Washington D.C., you're in charge of your city. What is a change that you would enact, or what would you choose to improve, and why? D.C. is a, a tale of two cities. Uh, we have some serious poverty here, and we also have some some unbelievable wealth. And the clashing of that is is probably one of the more difficult things with some of the violence and crime. I mean, that you'd invest in the kids. That's what you do. You, you invest in the next generation of people, and the and the city has done that. You know, D.C. has pre-K three, but you you invest in the future of the city. And then um, you got to give it time. You know, cities cities evolve over time. I think that's one of the things that real estate development taught me is to play the long game, uh, which is why our business model. You know, we've been growing more than 100% every single year. We we didn't grow 400% and you know do dumb things in order. We we just it's like clockwork. You put the time in, you build the foundation. That's how we built the business. That's how you have, that's how you see cities evolve. Uh, and so if I was the mayor, and again. Mayor's doing an awesome job here, relatively speaking. It's a tough environment. Uh, you invest in the kids. Invest in the kids and solving inequality. I like that. Jason, let's put you in the discomfort zone for a little bit. Uh, what's something you've changed your mind about? What's a perspective and opinion that you changed your mind and, and how did it happen? I guess I'll give you one lesson learned from building a company that anyone could take away. And then one specific to our business. The, the lesson learned for me was when I started the company, when me, me and Bao started the company, We were builders. We're used to building buildings. And so when you're building buildings, you need like, you know, you need the guy that does the concrete. You need the window guy. You need the whatever. Everything's just a bunch of parts. And so we saw building a company the same way. We need an accountant. We need a, you know, an admin. We need an analyst. And it, it turns out when you're building an organization, it's not just a bunch of blocks that stack. It's a living organism. And so any person has the ability to uplift and inspire and motivate or the opposite, any other person. And there needs to be this healthy set of um, flowing of information and ideas. And at first, we just kind of hired the, for the, the people for the job. And uh, over time, we've now moved to talent and people being at the, the number one goal to get right. You have the right team behind you. You can build anything. And that was not something I think I appreciated. I know I didn't appreciate it out of the gate. It's probably the biggest learning in the company building side. The biggest thing we missed on while building the company is We thought real estate people would be just a little more quick to adopt change. Now you think we would know better? A little, you just think, a little. You think we, you think we would know better because we spent our careers in it. Uh, but but we were like, oh, we don't have to go buy existing buildings and convert them to commingled dual use. We'll just start, we'll start building them to incredible returns, 30, 40% levered returns. And it turned out that was just one step too far. Like people, he was like, oh, we got to believe three or four miracles are going to happen, guys. We're like, okay, we'll do one miracle at a time. And so that's part of the way we've staged our way from pop-up to permanent, but done in an acquisition sort of way where we get to control it to a third-party way. Um, and then, you know, we'll not to development with that office to conversion. So we've had to do it in steps uh, because people were unwilling to make large leaps, the same size leaps we were willing to make. Yeah, people in real estate. I mean, the disruption is not a word that people welcome. That's the story of real estate technology. And it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Our LPs, we tell them, Hey, you don't have to move that fast if you're making a lot of money. You can be considered with how you're deploying or assimilating technology and at the same time proving new business models. It's just it's not that easy even if it's it smacks you in the face as being obvious. Well, I can drive millions of dollars of found money, found revenue 
if I have the pop-up hotel or flexible inventory within a specific asset makes for a higher yielding asset. But it's not that cut and dry. It, it takes time. And Jason, you and Val and the entire placemaker team have just done an absolutely fabulous job at continuing to evolve the company. We're, we're thrilled to be along for the ride. Yeah, it's a march. It's not a sprint, it's a march. And it's a long march. But as you march, it becomes more and more obvious. We had in the last week, there's three different groups that approach us that are like, okay, we're ready to do hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions. Like, let's go. And you're like, where were you guys like, you know, 12 months ago? They're like, okay, welcome to the welcome to the party. Hop on the boat. Let's go. You put the work in. You prove it out. We are unit economic. Like, we live and die by the unit economics, right? We're not, you know, flashy, flash in the pan. Like, look at this beautiful, shiny thing. We're like, prove the fundamentals, build the fundamentals, and then everything else will come. Jason, where can our listeners find you and learn more about Placemaker? Um, so they go to placemaker.com if they want to stay with us uh, or learn more or apply for a lot of jobs we need to fill. They can also find me on LinkedIn and shoot me a note. And I'm normally pretty good about getting back to people, although I might be a little slow. Yeah, they can, you know, they can listen to this podcast as many times as they want. Thanks for the shout out. Jason, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, very exciting what you guys are up to uh, blending these two super fundamental use cases of real estate, uh, which is uh, residential and hospitality. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Edward. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you guys having me. You got it. Thank you, Jason. Edward, always a pleasure. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share this episode with a friend. This season is edited by Katarina Silva and is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent and remember, collaboration is our superpower, so stay curious and always be learning.